0: Would you describe yourself as an evangelist? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I noticed yeah, yeah. Um, in the new book, I think it's as early as page nine, you actually write the words, I
1: am going to try and convert you, which I yeah, quite yeah, enjoyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I am. I thought no point in, no point in messing about. Lit Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.
0: Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian magazine featuring loads of great interviews, news, reviews, analysis and more. Have a look at all that we're up to right now on our brand new website, premierchristianity.com. Today on The Profile, my guest is the Archbishop of York, Archbishop Stephen Cottrell. He's been in post since July 2020, and in this interview, we're talking about his passion for evangelism, his new book, Dear England, and something of his own life story as well. Let's have a listen. Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, great to be with you, Sam. I wanted to start by talking about Thy Kingdom Come, which is now in its sixth year. It's led by yourself and the Archbishop of Canterbury. It sees thousands of people now around the world um, from different denominations joining together uh, to unite in prayer for people to come to know God. And it happens during Pentecost. Is it fair to say that this campaign, Thy Kingdom Come, has has been surprisingly successful from your point of view and also from Archbishop Justin Melby's point of view?
1: Yes. I mean I, think, uh, I mean, I think Archbishop Justin must take so much of the credit for its, uh, its development over, over the past six years. But I don't think for a moment he would have imagined that it would still be happening six years later. I think to begin with, it was just a kind of bit of a one-off. But it, seemed to, it seemed to, seems to have touched a chord with, with Christians across the world. You know, It has become a global movement of prayer. And I think um, the emphasis upon uh you know we all all long of course to share our faith and to see other people come to faith and quite often think what can I do about it and I think the emphasis on, on prayer is such a good emphasis and I know from my own life you know what a difference it makes when people pray for you um so uh so I'm delighted now in my, in my new position. Obviously, I've known and participated in Thy Kingdom Come since the beginning, but now I'm one of the voices that um, is, is behind, um, you know, championing it, uh, particularly in this country, but also across the world. And it's really exciting at this time, a great opportunity for the Christian faith for us to be looking forward to it again this year.
0: I understand this year there's a special focus on youth as well, isn't there? Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and your involvement in it?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think I mean, in a way, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? But uh, but I think we are aware that this year, as we come out of COVID, I think young people have been hit particularly hard. I mean, everyone everyone has suffered. It's been a really really difficult time. But my heart does particularly go out to to young people. Um, uh, for whom, well, I don't know, I can't imagine what it's been like uh, for, for many young people locked in, particularly young people in poorer communities without um, access to outdoor space. So it feels it feels timely that we might want to make a special um, intention of reaching out to young people with a message of hope. And of course, the timing is, is fantastic because um, we are now at last beginning to emerge um, from Covid. And we hope and pray we can now see ourselves uh, towards a new future. Um, and so to pray from Ascension to Pentecost this year, well, for, for all people to come to know Christ, but particularly for young people, yes. it feels like a wonderful thing to do
0: is there not another reason for for perhaps moving the attention to young people in that if we're honest with ourselves and we look at the statistics, when it comes to young people in the Church of England, it's pretty dire, isn't it? I mean, 38% of Church of England churches having no young people whatsoever and we know that during the pandemic, a lot of youth leaders have struggled to keep in touch with, even if they do have young people, they, they've struggled to do youth work online uh, for, for obvious reasons. I think any, any youth leader would, would struggle to, to run a youth club over Zoom. But surely this is one area of the church that needs some pretty radical thinking in order to. Yeah, turn it does. I
1: mean, in, it, I'm, I've been leading a group in the Church of England to develop our vision and strategy for the, the coming decade. And we've set ourselves three strategic objectives. Uh, one of which is to say we recognize, well, we believe God is saying to us, you need to be younger and more diverse. Um, this is a big challenge for us, but I kind of think you never you never get a cure until you get a good diagnosis. Um, and so we've made a good diagnosis that we we recognize that we are failing to connect with young people in the way that we should and with children and families as well. Um, and we need to pay attention to that. So that's that is. That is one of the very big challenges we face. Uh, There's an irony as well, isn't there? Because on the one hand, it's young people who are most at home in the digital world. um, And therefore, uh, in that sense, have found the move online, which the whole world has taken in the past year, easier than oldies like me. But on the other hand, um, we also know that the limitations of the online world also impact young people more than the rest of us um and as you say many many youth leaders and youth workers have reported just how hard it's been to hold things together um so as we emerge from covid we must make a special effort uh, mm. to reach out to young people
0: are you able to say at this point what that special effort might look like practically if you've if you acknowledge that the problem is is very significant what yeah, what can people well, actually do to to, to change that
1: I mean, I can say some things, but I need to preface it by saying, if there was an easy solution, we would have found it, I think, by now. Um, or if there was another church which was doing so brilliantly well, and we just needed to needed to copy what they were doing. You know, this is something that this is something about the whole of our culture. Um, we have got things to learn from other churches, um, but uh, there isn't there isn't a one size fits all magic bullet solution. I think the thing that I want to start with is recognizing that the best evangelists amongst children and young people are children and young people. Um, So I think the first thing we need to do is work much harder at empowering uh, children and young people in leadership and ministry themselves. So it's not something we do to them or for them It might be something to do with them, but even more than that, it's something that we set them free to do for and with others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And actually, one of the initiatives I'm very involved with is is the Archbishop of York's Youth Trust, um, which was set up by my predecessor. And one of the things the Youth Trust does, working with schools, particularly in the north of England but across the country, is, is about leadership, releasing and empowering young people for leadership, Um, And I'm hoping that the really good things that are happening in the youth trust can be amplified and multiplied, learned from and expanded in our churches and in in our schools. I think that would be one part of the story, um, but we've got lots to learn and other things to do as well
0: talking about young people, of course, brings us nicely to your own story. I wanted to hear a bit more about how you became a Christian. And of course, the story begins when you were quite a bit younger. Uh, So tell us um, what happened to take you from someone who was in a household that I don't think would have um, called themselves Christian or didn't have a particularly Christian background to now being Archbishop of York. That's quite a transformation. So how did it all begin?
1: Yeah, thank you, Sam. Um, Yeah, I mean, my parents uh, had been brought up going to church like most people of their generation i think they were almost the last generation where that was seen to be fairly normal and like many of their many of their generation they didn't reject the christian faith I, uh, would have would have definitely called themselves christians but they weren't churchgoers so there wasn't a, i was baptized as a baby so that i definitely went to church once um, uh, but uh, there wasn't really church in in those early years of my upbringing um, I think I believed in God, though, which I think is really interesting because that is true of many, many, many children who who perhaps don't go to church, don't their parents wouldn't even call themselves Christians nowadays, um, but they still have this belief in God. It, it, it's 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 kind of hot wired in. I mean, you know, you and I would would say that's not surprising, but people outside of the the Christian community might find that surprising that that children believe in God, even though nobody's ever told them about God, particularly. Um, and I was definitely one of those. I definitely had a belief in God, but no church, no formation in the Christian faith or or any other faith for that matter. Um, my sister joined the Girl Guides when she was, she's two years younger than me, when she was, I guess, 10 or 11. She joined the Girl Guides. She was required to go, these are the days when you're required to go to a church parade service once a month. She and a small group of friends liked what they found at the church parade service and started going along on the other Sundays in between, got confirmed, joined the church. This pricked my parents' conscience who then returned to the church um, and, and became, you know, you know, their whole faith was deeply renewed and they became, you know, really involved, deeply involved in the life of the church. And, and I was actually the last one of my family to kind of dip my toes in the waters of faith. Um, uh, but aged at about the same age where many people leave the church, I started joining it. Uh, I didn't have uh, a sudden conversion experience. There's lots of other contributing factors which I could talk to you about, but you probably need to turn this into a 13-part serialization because it, it was a long journey. I always
0: find that interesting, how, as you say some people have some people do have the, the lightning bolt moment of sudden conversion, but as you say, a, a lot of people, perhaps even the majority don't it's a
1: It's a long, slow yeah, burning: mean, but, you no, know, you're right, Sam mean there has been some very interesting research done by various groups on this, and the research overwhelmingly shows that most people have Emmaus road experiences rather than Damascus road experiences. you know it's the, it's the experience of a journey where when you look back. Um, you say, oh, well, if, you know, I, can, I can now see that God was with me the whole time, but I didn't know it at the time. And I, I mentioned the power of prayer. So, so I got drawn into the orbit of the church as a, as a teenager and a young person and music, a girl I fancied in the youth group, you know, all kind of very normal human things drew me into the life of the church. But when I did get ordained uh, uh, in the Anglican church, uh, at my ordination service, my auntie Millie, who wasn't really my auntie, she was my grandma's best friend, but I called her auntie. She was a devout Roman Catholic who went to mass pretty much every day of her life. At my ordination service, after the service, she told me um, she'd been to the ordination service, which for her was quite a big thing as a certain sort of old old school Roman Catholic. I get, I bet she'd written to the Pope for special permission to come, but... Um, She told me that every day, every day of her life when she'd been to Mass, she had prayed for the conversion of my family, her best friend, Betty's family. And when I heard that, you know, I suddenly saw my own story in a completely new way. Um, uh, And I do believe that one of the reasons I'm sitting here talking to you is not because of decisions I made to follow Christ, i have made decisions to follow christ but somehow mysteriously it was my auntie millie's prayers that even before i was born she was praying for my family because you know betty was her best friend and we were all you know we weren't a terribly you know you know we weren't we weren't a church-going family particularly she prayed for us so um, I mean, that's why I support the thy kingdom come. You know, yeah. I know that prayer makes a difference. Don't ask me how it makes a difference. It makes a difference because you're inviting God in. You're saying, God, please come into this situation and do your stuff. Mm. Um, and it's unpredictable. It's not, it's not putting money in a slot machine and pulling the handle and getting what you want. It's saying your will be done. But somebody prayed that for me um, and I only discovered it the day I was ordained. Mm. It's, so so a lot of stuff happened which brought me into the life of the church. And because I'm a bit of an all or nothing person, for me, becoming a Christian, going to church, vocation to ordained ministry, it's all woven up together. I can't mm. really separate them out.
0: It's very interesting you describe yourself as, as an all or nothing person, because actually in, in reading your book, which we'll come and talk about in, in a minute, um, but actually looking at a lot of your... A lot of your work that you do seem to have a real awareness of you said at the beginning of this interview in fact the need for us to share our faith with others hence being an all or nothing person it's not just i'm a christian it's that no there's something here i want to share with others um and it strikes me reading your book as well you're always very mindful of someone who might be even listening to this interview or reading your book who who does not currently share your faith you seem to always have one eye
1: on those outside of the church um would you agree with that is that yeah possible? no I, actually sam you know, I'm deeply encouraged to hear you say that because that's precisely how I try to be for for several reasons. One, because I still just about remember what it's like not to be part of the church. And I've always felt that's given me a little bit of an edge because many of my dear sisters and brothers were brought up. You know, the, the problem we face in England is that most people who are part of the church were brought up in the church Um, we're not very good, if I can, I hate this language, but you'll understand what I mean, recruiting people from outside. We're not very good at that. Mm. Um, But I'm one of the ones who was recruited from outside, and I still remember what it's like to to go for the first time and how weird it all is. Um, Weird and wonderful, but weird. Um, So I'm always trying to think of, remember what it's like for people who don't know um, and how difficult it can be, even if you're longing to find out about it. It can be very difficult, frightening, off-putting. Um, you, you know, you're you're worried that are you going to be asked to sign on the dotted line of a load of stuff you're not sure about? You know, even singing a hymn is, is really hard if you don't know whether you believe the words of that hymn. Mm. Um, but you don't want to be rude by not singing the hymn. And so you think, well, I won't go then, you know, because would I, with all my unbelief, be welcome? The answer is you'd be really, really welcome, but you don't know that. So I try to write and speak about faith in a way that is very mindful of uh, the, the spiritual longing, which is, I think, in everybody's heart, but also just how difficult church culture can be. And I don't blame Christians for it. I don't blame myself. I think we need to work harder at being more accessible at making it clear that it's quite, you know, I remember when I was a vicar, there was a man who said he wanted to come to church, but he definitely didn't believe, but he really liked the community, he liked the people. He liked the sense of belonging. And he actually asked me, he said, is it, he said, I don't believe. Um, he said, I quite like to believe, but I just don't. And I don't think I can. He said, is it all right to come on Sundays? And I said, yeah, but on one condition. And he said, all right, what's that? I said, I don't want you to say the creed, okay? You know, in fact, don't say anything if you, uh, if you don't want to, because I'd much rather wait until that day you feel you can say it than feel you've got to go through the motions. But I said, you're really, really welcome. We'd, lo- we'd love you to be part of the church. The day that he was baptised and confirmed quite a few years later was a great day. <laughs> it was a great day. But for years he was came to church pretty much every week joined in the life of the community but he didn't believe yeah now that's that's what church should be church should be this this gathering together of muddled humanity exploring what it means to follow jesus and um, and, and and as long as you just want to be part of that band you're welcome would you describe yourself as an evangelist Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I noticed yeah, yeah. Um,
0: in the new book, I think it's as early as page nine, you actually write the words,
1: I am going to try and convert you, which I yeah, quite yeah, enjoyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I am. I thought no point in, no point in messing about. Um, I, I hope I also make it clear that if you choose not to, that's fine. Because it's not about yeah. me persuading you. I think I do say in the book, if, if it rested upon my ability to persuade you, then somebody else will persuade you tomorrow to believe something else. It's an invitation, yeah. but I am going to offer you the invitation as clearly as I can, um, which often I uh, often I think evangelism is about removing obstacles, because in the end, it's not, don't follow me, follow Jesus, but I might be able to help you remove all the obstacles which are getting in the way of seeing Jesus clearly, yes. and that's what I hope the book does, is say, look... Yes. I mean, I use the analogy of going to the theater or the cinema where you kind of suspend your disbelief. And I think I say, look, just, just, okay, just for a while, bear with me, suspend your disbelief, enter into this world where God is real, very real in Jesus, and see what you make of it. Um, And let me show it to you. Yes. And then you make a decision, you know. Um, And if the decision is, yeah, and the the decision is uh... you don't like it, well, obviously I'm disappointed, but God loves you just the same. And, um, you know, have a look. Yeah, absolutely. So the the new book,
0: which is out now, is called Dear England, Finding Hope, Taking Heart and Changing the World, uh, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And as you say, it's it's rather than the work of apologetics that starts on the back foot and says, here are all your objections like suffering and... Um, you know, how could I possibly believe in God because of science rather than trying to dismantle those, you, you take a different approach. You say, so why not just suspend your disbelief? Why, why not enter into what a Christian worldview is effectively? Let me explain to you the, the difference that having a Christian worldview can actually make to your life and the way you think about all sorts of things. Um, and, and you, and you take that kind of approach, which is, I think is very unique and is, is clearly your, your style in this book of, of sharing the gospel message, um, I noticed one of the unique things, perhaps, about your approach is, uh, and you point this out as you write. I think it's, it's not until page ninety-eight that you mention the word sin, and you acknowledge the word sin can be quite off-putting. Nevertheless, some people would say, "Well, as I read the Bible and look at Jesus, his first message was repent, repent. The kingdom is at hand. Yeah. shouldn't Shouldn't that be up front in any explanation of the gospel? Don't we need to start with actually?" You have yeah. failed to live up to God's standards. You, you don't take that
1: approach, though, so I wanted to do No, that to no, it's, it's a really good question, and I, I need to emphasise. I'm not saying I'm right, um, but I am trying a different approach, which I think if people read the whole book, as, as you've pointed out, I, I, I hope I don't duck, you know, the central challenges of the gospel, which is about repentance and turning to Christ. Um, but I just, I get there, um, and I get there from a, by another route. And I think that my own justification for that would be um, that uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking into a thought world where people believed in God. So he, he didn't need to persuade people that God was real, um, uh, but he did need to persuade them some other things about themselves, perhaps, uh, which is why he began with the word repent, which, of course, also means turn around um it's not just about saying it is about saying sorry for your sins but it's not just that it's about the reorientation of your whole life and I think I would also argue that when you've read the whole book you might say oh actually the whole book is about repentance it's just because the whole book is about saying reorientate your life um and and what a difference that might make for your life and and for the world but yeah I think you know I wanted to be I wanted to be as faithful as I could be to the fullness of the Christian faith and therefore at some point when I mean also as you'll have noticed you know deliberately don't mention the Bible too much to begin with which I mm. acknowledge in the book some Christians might find that difficult. Um but again because I think if you're if you're not a Christian, if you're outside the Christian culture, too much of the Bible early on will just seem like special pleading. So I wanted to say, you know, we will get we'll get there as we do. You know it's very as you know it, the the book is very strong on the centrality of the of the biblical revelation but we get there and and i try to lead people on a different kind of journey so that's for me uh, uh you know i am an event i am an evangelist and for me being an evangelist was a was what i've described as a call within a call i thought i was just going to be a vicar but i quickly discovered in, in order to be a good vicar i had to become a good evangelist um uh so I've spent a lot of my ministry thinking about how can I present the Christian faith to people who don't know this whole thought world that goes with Christian faith. And my experience has been this kind of approach in preaching and teaching, you know, many people I've seen, you know, you know, it's been the great blessing of my ministry that I've seen people come to faith and, um, So yeah, I make no apology for it. I hope this book will bring people to faith.
0: Absolutely. And, and now in your role as, as Archbishop of York, is there an opportunity for you on a more strategic level to say, this is not just a personal thing for me in terms of evangelism, but say, as a corporate church, we need to put more time, money, investment into making the main thing, the main thing. And that is following the Great Commission, actually sharing our faith and, and on a more structural level, start to reorient some of our ministry with that in mind.
1: I mean, absolutely, Sam. I mean, that is my heart's desire. I I get deeply frustrated, if I can bear my soul with you, I get deeply frustrated when uh, too much attention has to be drawn elsewhere, which I accept because, you know, we are a large organisation facing many structural challenges which I have to pay attention to. Um, You know, we all have bits of our jobs that we wouldn't choose to do, but we have to. Um, But my heart's desire and my aim is to be um, a teacher and and an evangelist. You know, in any role, this would be true of what you do. It would be true of what I'm doing now. It's not about your position. It's about using the gifts that God has given you. So the question I've asked myself is, God, why have you called me to be the Archbishop of York? You know, because it wasn't what I was expecting. You know, you don't apply for it. Uh, Why have you called me? And... And the answer I've got, and until somebody sort of tells me to go and lie down in a darkened room and you know <laughs> hand in my P forty five, until they say that, I think the answer I've come to is it's it's because it's because of your calling to teach and share the Christian faith. And so I'm longing to be, dare I say this? Well, I will say it. I, I'm longing to be an archbishop who gives their time to the preaching of the gospel but to try to do it in a way that will be winsome and effective in our culture Uh, and the the real danger is that some of the models we've used in the past were great in the past but they're not they're not effective nowadays so we need to find new ways of doing it and the other thing is I want to Mm. I want to I want to enable the church to do that so one of the other, you know, we've got some objectives in the Church of England at the moment. And one of them is simply that we might be more centered on Christ because, you know, there's, there's no evangelism which doesn't flow from your own relationship with God. So the, the first question is always, you know, uh, one of my definitions of evangelism is that we give from the overflow of what we have received. So the first question is. Stephen, have you received the gospel, you know, and I need to receive it afresh every day. Otherwise, what do I have to share? Um, Just my own wisdom, which isn't really very interesting. Um, But secondly, I then want to train and mobilize and encourage and focus the church on being what we're calling in the Church of England at the moment, a church of missionary disciples, Uh, that every Christian person uh, feels empowered and equipped Uh, to live and share the gospel in their daily lives, in the whole of life. Um, And and I hope that in my time as Archbishop, I can make some contribution to, to that spiritual and evangelistic renewal of the Church of England.
0: Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way.
1: Transform your perceptions. Broaden your horizons. Open your mind to wide-ranging views.
0: Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters.
1: Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum.
0: Be provoked. React. Inspired and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com.
1: Premier Christianity magazine.
0: The bigger picture. I'd love to know what an average day for the Archbishop of York looks like. I imagine there probably isn't an average day. But just going back to what you said a moment ago about needing to receive the gospel message yourself afresh... As part of that question, I'd love to know, what does that look like in terms of spiritual disciplines, prayer, yeah. Bible reading? Is is there an average day of,
1: of that sort of yeah, thing well, for you as yeah, well? I mean, yes. I mean, I mean, yes and no. I mean, uh, at the moment, like everybody, my life is on Zoom. So I do a lot of things, but they all feel the same because I'm kind of s- occupying the same space, looking at the same screen, even though there's, there's different people at the end of it. Um And I think when we get beyond COVID, I imagine, well, I'm sure I'll be much more out and about than I am at the moment. But the heart of my daily life, or the thing I say to myself and to those I serve, is the most important thing I do each day is pray. That is the most important thing. Um, And so I do have, uh, I I consider myself a a beginner in the spiritual life. So I I, I don't pretend to be anything other than that. Um, But... Uh, the daily discipline of prayer, which for me is rooted in what we call in the Church of England, the daily office, which is, which is actually just means the Psalms and the scriptures. That's really what it means is, uh, but I I find the discipline of a set pattern of Psalms and scriptures works for me because it stops it being, it stops me just reading the bits I like, or, you know, it, it, it's that, you know, and I, I find that helpful. Um, and there for me, like the iron rations of the spiritual life are for me, I mean, the Psalms probably in particular, but the Psalms and the scriptures and the daily reading of those. And, and I crave silence. Um, uh, I, I long for that silence beyond, I think I need the words to get me there, but I crave and long for the silence beyond words. I believe that prayer is, is the heart of prayer isn't about what I say to God, it's about what God says to me. What, what I mean by that is that I arrive at a point where I'm open to, to God's will and the knowledge of God's love for me, to know that I'm the beloved of God and that he longs for me to share that knowledge of our belovedness with everyone. Um, the, the Eucharist is also deeply important to my spirituality. Um, I,
0: the, the big debate over that, of course, has been, can we share communion online yeah, over Zoom? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And and for the Church of England, um, obviously, that's a very live question. Um, we, we have not arrived at a point, nor do I imagine we will do in the near future, where we could imagine that, that communion itself could be online. But we have recovered a bit of our history, which is a thing called spiritual communion. Which, which was developed I mean, centuries ago for, for isolated groups of Christians who had no access to the Eucharist, whereby you would say a prayer of inviting Jesus into your heart. And actually, that's, that's been very beautiful. And many people have been using that. They've, got, they've attended an online Eucharist and then at the point where you would receive Holy Communion, they've made this prayer of spiritual communion. The image I have from scripture in my mind is, you know, the story of the woman with the hemorrhages who touches just the hem of Jesus's garment, but still receives the fullness of Christ's healing and presence. It's like that. COVID has been a season where we've been touching the hem. Mm. We, we haven't been able to embrace and touch in the way that we would like, but that doesn't mean to say God is is absent to us. Mm. He's fully present to us, but it's been in a different way. Um, But for my personal spirituality, um, the Eucharist is hugely important and and shaping, not not just, I I believe that in receiving the bread and wine of Holy Communion, I am receiving the risen life of Christ. I'm a pretty old fashioned Christian in the things I believe and that's what I believe um, and experience. But I also, the Eucharist is also important to me because it's it's emblematic of Christian community. The Eucharist forms us as a community, though we are many, we, uh, we are, you know, we share in the one bread and we're formed into one body. Um, So that, you you know, the book that I've written, one of the ideas at the heart of the book is that, we belong to each other, Um, that Christ shows us what belonging to God, belonging to each other, belonging to the earth really means. Mm. Love love God, love your neighbour as yourself. And when we gather around the table, it's just that the table on earth is just a shadow of the table in heaven. That's how I see it, you know. The the Bible often speaks about the life of heaven as a banquet. You know, Jesus says on the night before he dies, I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And the image I have in my mind is of a, you know, a pucker banquet with the places set. I'm going now and there's going to be a place with your name on it. I'm going to prepare that place. And I will return to take you with me. And in the meantime, we gather around the table on earth, which is like the shadow of the table in heaven. So for me, participating in the Eucharist, for me is, is on earth, the greatest sign of the kingdom of heaven and the greatest um, emblem of what the Christian life should be, a life lived in community.
0: There were hopes that the pandemic might really cause people to stop and think and contemplate the big issues in life, which I think, if we're honest, a lot of people just don't. They get on with their day to day life, don't give yeah. a second thought to life after death or is there a God? There are hopes that the pandemic might wake people up to some of those big questions. Do you think that's happened?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things that's happened, I mean, let's not miss, you know, the, the, the COVID has been a horror. And there's been so much sorrow in our world. You know, there's a real danger that Christians might, you know, be heard as saying, oh, good, you know, a, a nice crisis. People will turn to yeah. God. It, what's happened is is horrible and it is not of God. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean to say good can't come out of it. And one of the things I think many of us have observed is the growth of online communities of faith. I mean, in some cases, massive growth. I mean, so many churches have reported larger online congregations than they had in physical congregations. And we don't know what's going to happen post COVID. You know, I'd love to think all those people who've met online will come to church. We don't know. We don't know what they'll do. Well,
0: there was one, re- t- one report suggesting that actually as many as
1: 20% may not come back to church. So the opposite would happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've read that report. I mean, I, I don't know well, as I've read. it. I've read about it. I don't know. I don't know what evidence they have for that. There's obviously been some sort of market research done. Um, And obviously, I hope that isn't going to happen. But we but the the honest answer is, we don't know. But what we do know is that people have joined us online, and we don't know what those people are going to do. Um, So one thing that we must do, therefore, is we must carry on nurturing those online communities of faith. Because I think, again, going back to one of the sort of presuppositions of the book, the book I, the book presumes that actually a lot of people are interested in hearing about the Christian faith, um, and here's a book to help them do it. Well, why would you join an online community of faith? You'd only join it because you've got some interest, and what we've experienced is that for many people, joining online is just so much easier. In fact, when you stop to think about it, it's obvious. You can, When I join online, if I don't like it, I can just switch off. I can turn up in my pyjamas. I can... If I want need to go to the loo, I can go to the loo. I can make a cup of coffee. Um, for people who are outside the Christian culture, it's a really easy, accessible way of dipping your toe in the Christian waters. And some people have stayed. You know, they've stayed and become part of that community. So that's going to continue. Um, and I think the future will be a mixed ecology, hybrid future for the church, for all the churches. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think at the moment, it's very hard to predict exactly where that's going to lead us. But I see that almost entirely positively, um, that, you know, it's not very often the church has a growth problem, but right now we have a growth problem. We have thousands of people who've joined us online, and we have to work out how we're going to nurture that belonging. Um, and we're going to have to work out what it means to be an online as well as a meeting physically church. And I think I think the word hybrid is a bit of jargon, but I think the word hybrid describes well what the church will probably become in the next few years.
0: Yes, well recently we ran a, a cover story, we called it 12 months to change the church, and I believe it was uh, Bishop Graham Tomlin who pointed out that if, he, if he'd gathered churches together Know five years ago and said, let's all go online, it would have been a real struggle. But the pandemic's yeah. actually forced us to have to do it. And as you say, churches across the board, not just the Church of England, but across the dominations, for the yeah. most part, for the most part, most churches have very successfully embraced the online world.
1: Yeah. And it's opened up ways of doing things. And I was at a meeting last night in the York Diocese, you know, a couple of hundred people meeting. Uh, everybody said, at the end, you know, can we do this more often? And the answer well, yeah, we can, because in the past doing this would have been expensive. It would have cost a lot of carbon. We'd have to, you know, it would have taken hours out of our diary because we'd all be traveling. We could get together really easily. Well, why would, we, why would we even think about stopping doing that when it's such a blessing and it's so easy and it's inexpensive and it's better for the planet and better for our own mental health? Um, but it will be a mixed ecology of meeting in person, meeting online. And and I believe that out of that, we may see some of the, you know, that the early seeds of renewal for the church, you know, let's, you know, perhaps we just need to be more honest with ourselves that we were too wedded to certain ways of doing things that we don't need to relinquish them, but we do need to cross fertilize them with other ways of being church. Hey, I'm a, I'm a I'm I'm an optimist, Sam, you know, so I'm I'm very hopeful mm. that what I see is something that will flourish. Yes.
0: One of the criticisms of the Church of England, um, the Church of England hierarchy, if I could use that word, has been that, that it can be the church can be seen to be quite political, overly political. And it's interesting because actually one of the things you do in the book is you connect belief in God's to real world practical action. I mean, you get into Brexit and trident, um, mm. economics. And I think that's quite helpful in showing people when you're a Christian, it should actually change the way you think about it, all sorts of political issues. And it's not just that you mm. believe something in theory, but it should affect the way we live. And I think Christians would go along with that. I suppose the, the perceived danger in being political is especially in a book where you're, as you say, trying to convert people. If if the book were to give over a whether it's strongly left or right or remain or Brexit, if if it were to err in one direction, would not a non-Christian reader think I'm not actually going to listen to the archbishop anymore because he's in such a different place to me politically. I'm not going to listen to a spiritual message. I think that's the concern that Christians have whenever whenever anyone in the church becomes, quote unquote, political. How, How would you address that concern?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Sam. And it's a question I think I wrestled with writing the book is like, do I stop? Um, after the first two parts of the book um, or or say something very general or do I get down into some of the nitty-gritty challenges that the world faces and um, I found I read another book which really really helped me um, and really challenged me that I had to get involved in these issues I don't know if it's a book you've read but I can recommend it it's called the new testament Um, uh, because it has these radical ideas about how we belong to each other in it. And it's impossible to read the new Testament and then not say, this has got to make a difference to the way we order our lives and order the world. It's just impossible. Um, and so for those who say, you know, politics and religion don't mix, I just kind of think, well, okay, I get that's your view, but I don't think you could have ever really read the new Testament. Um, because if you did, you would come to a different conclusion um, that we have to care about the way the world is ordered. You certainly have to care about the poor. Um, so, um, so I felt I had no choice um, but to say it. I, I don't really mind if some people don't agree with my conclusions and I've tried not to be too dogmatic about it, but other people will have to judge that. Also, I don't think it follows any one political party or narrative. Um, uh, So the book is very strong on family and the importance of family, which you might say is a right-wing way of looking at things. And it does also question whether we should be spending money, so much money on arms, which might be thought of as being a very left-wing concern. But I'm not too bothered about those categories because I'm writing from what I, as, as I see it, the, the biblical Christian narrative about peace, the poor, justice, and simply raising some questions about if you're a Christian, you should be thinking about how we order the world, particularly, I think I talk about family, community, nation, world, you know, we should be thinking about those things, you know, the environment would be a very good example of that, that it, it's, it's impossible to read the Bible, though Christians were very good at it for a long while. Um, you know, the Christians faithfully read their Bibles for centuries and thought slavery was okay. You know, so we're, we're, we're really good at getting it wrong. That's why we, that's why you, you have at some point to confront human sinfulness. Um, but right now, it's I think it's impossible to read the Bible and not see that God is calling us to be stewards of the earth. Um, and uh, what does... You know therefore that's such an important message for our world. So um so I I I did wrestle with how I should express that. I hope I've expressed it in a way which won't alienate any one political party, but I realise it might. Is the response then to the objection
0: that the church is political the the response from you is not um it's not to say, you know, no, we're not. We're talking about spiritual things. The response from you is to say, no, to be political and to be spiritual. They're intertwined. They're both yeah, important. Absolutely. Because when I receive letters, when I, when I receive letters from people, they say, you know, Sam, Church of England, they keep talking about politics and the media. Why won't the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York, why won't they just preach the gospel? And sometimes I wonder, well... Well, hang on, Archbishop Stevens. He's written a whole evangelistic book here, <laughs> trying yeah. to share share the gospel. But of course, when you do when you do a lot of media interviews, it's not your fault if the journalist actually wants to talk about all the political you, stuff you've said in the last part of the book, and not the stuff you said in the first two parts of the book. So, is there a little bit of that going on that actually? Yeah, cer- when-
1: yeah, there certainly is. Um, you know, and I did a I did an interview with the Observer last weekend about the book, which actually was I thought was a very fair, good interview. I mean, I really liked the reporter. You know, but she did say in the interview. You know, I, I really like some of this stuff about, you know, our identity and our belonging and how we need to live in community. But I just don't get all this God stuff. And, and I said, well, you know, I, I get it. Fair, fair enough. I, I understand that. I said, but for me, there is no separation here. Um, and, and I also hopefully challenged her by saying, and, and I think perhaps you need to realize that v- values and ethos, which we can all agree on, don't exist in a vacuum. You know, values and ethos for us as Christians flow from beliefs and doctrine, you know. Um, uh, And the danger is that the world wants the values and the ethos, but it doesn't want the belief and the doctrine. Um, uh, And uh, you can perhaps manage for a while without them. But in the end, uh, you, you start you know, you start losing your moorings as a culture. Mm. Um, so, there's,
0: a, there's a popular there's a popular phrase go around some parts of the church now, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's that people want the kingdom without the king. Yeah, but Actually, we, we want all of the good stuff that, that Christianity yeah. brings us, but we're not so bothered about the Jesus bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and because I, I hope the book is very clear, you know, which is why actually, I, I, thinking of your question earlier, I think actually the whole book is about repentance. I just don't use the word till the end. The more I think about it, your your question has really helped me understand the book itself because the whole book is actually about saying the problem is the human heart. I mean, that's actually where the book begins. Mm. Almost the first page it says, my diagnosis is the world needs a heart transplant. Of course, that's another way of saying, you need to be forgiven. But but I don't use that language. I use the language of a new heart. Um, But really what I'm saying is you need to repent. Because part of what yes. happens when you repent is that you're given you're given a new heart and a new spirit. Yeah. Um, so um, so so yeah, absolutely. You know uh, the, the, if if we could if we could solve all this be, through our own cleverness and wisdom, then we would have done it. But we haven't. In fact, our own cleverness and wisdom has led to some horrors in the world, which religion has to take its share of blame for that. Um, but the Christian way. starts with the human heart and says that is the real that's the first Mm. thing to change and only God can change hearts and then from that a whole set of beliefs and values flow which can shape the world in a better way but no you you can't have one without the other I mean that's the that is the challenge of the Christian faith
0: Yes, and the book makes a, a fantastically positive case for why you might want to embrace this God and have your heart transformed and, and how God is set about changing hearts, as you say. But I suppose one question that I'm left with is what happens to those who reject that message? Or to put it another way, what happens to those who, for whatever reason, God doesn't change their hearts in this life? Yeah. Are there
1: any consequences to that? Uh, I mean, yes, yes, I think they are. Though, thankfully, um, I'm not the judge. You know, the other thing the Bible is very clear about is God has appointed a judge, and it's not me. Um, uh, so, so um, I, I leave that to God, but but I'm clear, in, you know, I, I will only talk about myself here. I'm clear that um, if I choose to reject, if I choose to willfully reject that which I know to be right and true and good, then I have to accept the consequences of that. Um, but... Willfully rejecting and never having heard are not the same thing. And so my, my my energy and effort goes into helping people to hear the good news clearly so they can make a response to it. So I, so I feel my job is to hand out the invitations. You know, there's a great party. Here's the invitation. That's what I'm going to focus on. If somebody chooses to reject the invitation, it's not my job to judge what happens to them. Yeah. But I need to be clear, you know, as with all of life, there's always consequences, isn't there? Um, yes. But the other thing which always gives me great, great, um, you know, gives me great hope is um, if I if I could choose who, to, who was going to judge me, or Sam, if you could choose who's going to judge you, who would you choose? Well, I think I would choose somebody. First of all, I'd choose somebody who loves me. You know, who, who loves me? That would be, you know, because I'm going to be judge one day. I, you know, I'm clear about that. It's going to be a reckoning. So Stephen, you're going to be judge one day. But God has said you can choose the judge. Okay. So first of all, could I choose somebody who loves me? Secondly, it'd be really good if I could choose somebody who knows what it's like to be me. Kind of who, underst- who doesn't just love me, but understands me. That would be really good. Uh, in fact, somebody who kind of walked in my shoes, as it were, that would be really, really good to have that person as a judge, and of course, you'll see where this is going. That's exactly who God has appointed. You know, God has appointed Jesus as judge, yeah. the one who loves us, the one who knows what it's like to be human, the one who walks in our shoes, the one whose character is mercy. So it doesn't mean to say I'm not saying therefore nothing to worry about. I'm just saying um, judgment's not up to me, but that doesn't mean to say there isn't a judgment.
0: Yeah, I uh, I mentioned earlier various criticisms that can come your way. How do you decide what critical voices to listen to and to learn from, and which, to use the internet terminology, which are just trolls? You know, which are just not worth the time
1: and the effort. Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Sam, um, because I get you know, you know, I, I am the Archbishop of York, but I'm also Stephen, um, um, who's frail and and, you know, gets things wrong, um, and sometimes puts my foot in it. Uh, and uh, and I do get deeply distressed by the stuff I read about myself on social media sometimes, where I just feel um, I don't feel I've been heard or things are said which I just simply don't recognise that that's what I've ever said. And and um, And I try to be disciplined about either not reading it at all or just, trying to quarantine it and not take notice of it. But, I, but I, I, I am troubled by what social media has done to human discourse and the casual way in which we can be so, so rude to each other, even in, even in the Christian community. Um, and I want, to, I want to live in a world where I believe in the very best intentions of others, um, not in the worst. Um so uh, there's lots about the social media world which troubles me but I do still participate in it because I hope to I hope to be a voice of hopefulness and Christian goodness within it. Um but um but it goes a little bit with the with the territory that I think anybody in yes. in public office has to accept that there's going to be criticism and misunderstanding the important thing is well, perhaps it's where this conversation began, Sam. The first thing you asked me probably before we went on air was you asked me um, how, to, how I should be addressed. And I said it's OK to call me Stephen um, because I think the important thing is I, I feel greatly honoured to be the 98th Archbishop of York, to have such a position of responsibility and such opportunity within the church. It is a great honour. But I need to remind myself, it's Stephen who's occupying this role. Stephen, the sinner in need of forgiveness. Hmm. Uh, sinner, the, Stephen, the person who messes it up. Um, and uh, provided I remember that, I think therein will perhaps lie my salvation in, in terms of how I'll navigate my way through being the Archbishop of York. It's uh, it's funny what you say. I mean, it's sadly
0: true what you say about online discourse and how sometimes it feels like Every time you load up Facebook or Twitter, it's just people constantly disagreeing with each other in some fairly nasty ways. And in my darker moments, um, something that gives me hope is when I think about our local church. You know, my local church has people with all sorts of different views on theology, politics. And yet we all turn up. We all well, I say when when COVID isn't yeah. around, we all turn up in the same building. We all worship, worship the same God together. And there's incredible unity, even though we will disagree. And it strikes me, related to that, that, that people will say things to people behind a laptop screen that they would never dare say to their face. Yeah. Um, there's something almost dehumanising about the, the way we go. It about- is, and
1: I think that's why, where social media can be dangerous, because you're absolutely right. Um, if, we were, if we were together in, in the room, even if, you dis- even if somebody disagreed with something I'd said, or vice versa, we would never, I don't think, or very, very rarely would we ever, Deal with it in the way we deal with it online, and, and imagine that's acceptable, and uh, and the the terrible damage it's done to people, and particularly I think for young people, um, uh, it can be a very very horrible and and viscerally violent, verbally violent world. Um, but yet, as you say, when you when you when you're in church with your sisters and brothers, who who are a motley band of muddled humanity with a whole range of views and all sorts of things, it's amazing how we do manage to live together with our disagreements. Um, and I think it's because, you know, I think it's because that is the nature of the Christian faith. You know, it's not. Um, you know, we're followers of Jesus, um, and the and. Like, like the story I told earlier about the man who who came to church but didn't believe. You know, he was welcome. Mm. Um, you know, the, we 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 set you know we set the bar really low for entry. We say everybody's welcome. Now we want people to make a commitment, and the bar of commitment is high, but the bar of entry is low. You know, mm. come, um, and uh, and I, I want the church to be a place where everybody is welcome. And therefore, that has to include people who I disagree with.
0: Just finally, then, um, Justin Welby is going on sabbatical. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that has some ramifications for you personally and for your role. How is that decision going to affect you um, in terms of your ministry and yeah. just, in, just in yourself, I guess, and how busy you will be in the coming months?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think fact, these may be famous last words, Sam. I may have to I may have to eat my mitre on this one, but I don't I don't think it'll make a huge difference. I mean, we we, we try to work very much as a team, Um, you know, a piece of scripture which has really influenced, I think, both of us. Uh, in in our respective roles and maybe actually a bit of a prophetic word for the church of england it's jesus sent them out in pairs and i think some of the church of england models of ministry have sometimes been about the loan the loan the lone operator yeah. and jesus sent them out in pairs and i think um, we've taken that as a bit of a text for our ministry that will try to be collaborative try to be a partnership and so in terms of the diary a lot of the things, it's not going to mean a lot of extra things in the diary because we, we did a lot of things together anyway. So I'll just be there on my own. Um, but, it, but it's not an extra thing. There will be some extra things. And certainly there'll be some buck stops here things which may come my way. Um, but I'm, I'm not feeling anxious about it. Um, I, I do believe ministry is collaborative. I do believe ministry belongs to the whole people of God. Of course, I've got my particular responsibilities, but I've also got a great team around me here working with me. Um There are there are some very gifted lay people and other bishops with responsibilities in the Church of England who will step up a bit during this period to help me. So, um uh, yeah, so uh, I'm sounding like I'm not worried about it at all. And I suppose I'm, I'm not really. I, I trust good. that you know i'm really pleased i think it's really good that the archbishop is taking a sabbatical um it's really important that um we find space all of us in our lives to recharge ourselves yeah so i'm really pleased he's doing that and i want to enable him to do that by doing my bit with others mm. in, in during that 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 season
0: i don't know how much you've you've thought of this obviously being early on in in the role but when, you, when the time does come for you to finish, are there certain things that you really want to have accomplished? So people look back and say, Stephen Cottrell, Archbishop of York, he
1: did this. Yeah, well, this is going to sound terribly pious answer, Sam, but it, I think it's the truth. You know, I, I must decrease, he must increase. You know, that's that's been my text. So who cares what I achieve? You know, I... Um, uh, I, I, if I could write my own obituary, which of course you can't, but if I could, I would say what I said to you earlier, I so said I hope you would say, um, the 98th archbishop of York gave his time to teaching and sharing the gospel. And you know, I'd love it if people came to faith as a result, but I, I don't think I'll think I've failed if they don't because mm. it's not about success or failure. It's about faithfulness mm. and fruitfulness. Mm. So my job is to be faithful and if the Lord of the harvest, brings people to faith then I will rejoice but if he doesn't I'll carry on trying to be faithful and I just hope that's all they'll say he was a faithful archbishop he he was a preacher and a teacher um I I I don't I you know I don't expect anything more I read before I became archbishop of York I read the there's a book about all the archbishops of York and on the whole they're not a very memorable bunch you know there's the odd the odd saint and the the odd the odd genius but most of them were faithful people who were teachers and preachers, and and I, I, I hope to be one of them.
0: That's a lovely place to leave it. Archbishop Stephen Cottrell, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Profile podcast today. It's been great to have your company, and we really hope you enjoyed that conversation. There's one thing you can do that would really help us out and mean a lot, and that is rate and review this podcast. So just head to wherever you downloaded this podcast from. Give us a rating. We recommend 5 out of 5. But please, Give us whatever rating you feel we deserve and a short little review would go a long way to helping other people to discover the show. So give us a rating and a review. It would mean so much and have a great rest of your day. Take care.